0: I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, or otherwise your attention to the screen, to the book of Psalms, to the 78th Psalm, and we'll be reading together the first eight verses. This is what Asaph writes. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands, They would not be like their ancestors, this stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The church is an amazing institution. Over the last 2,000 years, the steeper the challenge, the higher the price, the greater the persecution, the more the church has grown. The church is at its best when the world seems to be at its worst. In China, for example, there are over 1.3 billion people. In a country that passionately promotes atheism, there are currently about 100 million believers who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. A researcher at Purdue University suggests that that number will double in the next 10 years and may reach as high as 250 million. Not one of them has become a Christian because it's comfortable or it's convenient. Because in China, it's not. And yet I wonder sometimes if it isn't harder to be a follower of Jesus Christ in Hudsonville, Michigan, than it is in China. When becoming a disciple and following Jesus becomes easy and comfortable and really no big deal, something is significantly out of sorts and wrong. Robert Munger, in this little booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, pictures Jesus asking to go from room to room to room in our heart. And this morning he asks if he can come into our workroom. And so, rather apologetically, with some hesitation, we lead him into our well-furnished workroom. He notices the amenities that we have the padded chairs, the soft sofa, the tool chest filled with the latest but largely unused power tools, our cutting-edge technology, our air conditioning, and our abundant resources. And he asks, what are you doing with your life for the kingdom of God? And there it is. It's the mission question. And so we show him a few of our little projects that we have done over the years. And he says, is this the sort of thing you're doing for others in your Christian life? And again, apologetically, we say, Lord, I know this isn't much, but this is really the best that I can do. And now... I'm feeling quite embarrassed. Would you like to do better, he asks. And I say, Lord, you know I would. And he says, then invite my spirit to come in and work in and through you. Let go. Stop trying to change it and make it your way. Let me do my work in you. You see, it's not... Our ability that God is ultimately interested in. It is our availability that He longs for. It is not the quality or the quantity of the tools that we have in our workroom. It is our willingness to use the tools that we have been given for their intended purpose. If we give Christ's Spirit control of our workroom, then we become the tools in His hands. And so Christ is inviting us to come out of the drawer off from the shelf, down from the pegboard, and to go to work. And if we do, he promises that there will be some amazing things that will happen because he has been at work through us. The psalmist gives us a picture of what this might look like. He says, if you will, imagine three chairs So you have to imagine, because these are not chairs, these are stools. But imagine, imagine these are three chairs, and we're in the middle chair. This is our chair. This is our place in the family of God, right here on this chair. This is where you and I get to sit. When you and I first came to church, there was a place. There was a chair. There was an opening in the bench. There was a seat for you. Now, you may still remember when that was. Maybe you remember that that first day, Christ tapped on your heart. When those questions you had seemed to lead you to an answer. When somebody gave you an invitation and you came and you were welcomed and you were embraced. You may have been sitting in this very same chair for years. Maybe you've been sitting in that same chair for so long that when you come to church on a particular Sunday morning and there's somebody sitting in your chair, you get a little frustrated. I know there was an occasion my grandfather came to church and there was actually somebody sitting in the chair that he had sat in for years and years and years. And he told them that was his chair, and they needed to move, and they did. But this is your chair. This is where you sit. This is your place in the family of God. And there is a chair over here on my left and on your right. This chair suggests that there was somebody here, before you and I got to sit in this chair, there was somebody that preceded us. There was somebody that extended to us an invitation. There was somebody that was praying for us. There was somebody in their mind had our best interests at heart and wanted to bring us along. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Somebody. Somebody because we're in this chair, because there has been somebody in that chair before us. My parents took me to church. I was baptized as an infant. And maybe the reason you're sitting here is for the very same reason. Maybe your parents, when you were an infant or a toddler, started to take you to church. Maybe you came as a student. Maybe you come as an adult, Maybe you, if you will, married in and you're here. Whatever the reason, you're in this chair and there was somebody in this chair that had your best interest at heart for a long, long time before you got here. Because you see, this chair goes way back. This chair goes back to Jesus. Jesus, while he was here on earth, he had some friends and he said some things to those friends and those friends said something to their friends and those friends to their friends And they prayed for one another, and they started to come together, and they formed what you and I now know as the church. So this chair actually represents chairs that go all the way back to Jesus. It's never been comfortable. It's seldom been convenient. But there has never been a generation that has not heard that good news. There's never been a generation that hasn't heard about Jesus. There's never a generation where this chair has been empty. There's always been somebody here. And they've been concerned about this chair. And now there's a chair over here on my right, on your left. This is the next generation chair, as the psalmist would say. This is where our children or our grandchildren or our neighbor or our coworker, someone who doesn't yet know and has not yet embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hope one day we'll be able to sit. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, we need to work on everyone becoming mature in Jesus Christ. This is what he wrote in Colossians 1:28. He says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may one day present everyone fully mature in Christ. The psalmist, and this is a psalm we just read, says, we will tell the next generation the praise-worthy deeds of our Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done, and then they will put their trust in God. This is the mission. This is the work. This is the challenge of the church. This is the main thing. And it is our purpose and our responsibility to keep the main thing The main thing three chairs past, present, and future. Get it? All right. When I say get it, you say got it. Get it? Good. A lot of churches today are two chair churches. There are churches that have started up rather recently and they are very creatively and even to some point successfully reaching the next generation. And that's great. But what they are missing, they don't have, like Georgetown, almost 50 years of being together in community. They are not part of a denomination like ours that celebrates 170 plus years of being together. They don't reach all the way back 500 or so years to a to a reformation. They don't have that kind of foundation, they don't have that kind of background. They don't have a if you will first chair to lean on when things get tough and difficult. There are also a lot of churches that have a great past where God has done something amazing in them in the previous years, but they're no longer relevant. They are totally preoccupied with reminiscing about those good old days, and they're not focused anymore on getting more and better disciples. They are primarily focused on being in that middle chair, on themselves. And as a result, the church is slowly dying. Many churches today are ignoring this important third chair. And the truth is, without the focus on this third chair, there isn't much of a future. This church has a great past. But this church can have an even greater future if we simply focus on being a three-chaired church. We can be a three-chair church. You see, Scripture calls us to be Christ-centered. It calls us to be Jesus-loving. It calls us to be Spirit-led. It calls us to care for one another and to serve our world. We are called, if you will, to love God, to love each other, and to serve this world. We can be a church focused on faith formation, focused on worship, focused on outreach, We can be a church that is shaped by the scriptures, empowered by prayer and inspired by God's spirit. We can be a three-chair church, deeply committed to engaging God's plan to embrace the faith, the faith of our fathers that involves our whole heart and all our soul and our mind and our strength and intentionally be passing the gospel on to the next chair, to the next generation To our children and to our grandchildren, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and to this world. You see, we are not here this morning. We are not sitting in the seat that we are sitting in this morning accidentally. We just don't happen to be here by coincidence. No, there were a group of people who were sitting in that first chair who made an intentional decision. We will work. And we will pray. We will serve and we will share and we will dream and we will give and we will sacrifice and we will even suffer, but we will persevere. We will pay whatever price is necessary, which on some occasion included their life so that you and I could hear the gospel and we could be here this morning and sit in that middle chair. When the people in a church care more about the chair that represents the future than they do about remaining comfortable and having it convenient in the chair in which they're sitting, then we have a great church. The question is, will we, will you, do for the next generation what the previous generation did for us? For you and pull out all the stops so that as we move from that first chair to the second chair and take up residence, that we're also concerned about who's going to be sitting in this third chair. How do we do that? Well, we turn our workroom over to Jesus. We focus on this third chair. We desperately try to keep the main thing, the main thing, And we embrace what I will call the five B's. The five B's. So here they are. First, be inviting. Be inviting. You see, the gospel gets passed on one person at a time. It has been that way since Jesus. You are here because at some point, someone you knew said, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about God's grace. Let me tell you about church. Maybe somebody invited you to church, or maybe they invited you first to youth group, or maybe if it was your parents, they just took you along, and here you are. So there is this empty chair. Who in your life would God like to be sitting in that third chair? Maybe a name comes to mind almost instantly. Maybe it's one of your children or one of your grandchildren. Maybe it's a sibling or a niece or a nephew. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a next-door neighbor. Do you have somebody in your life whose spiritual well-being you are concerned about? Whose spiritual future you are praying for? How many of you, how many of you have someone you know? whose eternity is a concern to you. Yeah. See, I know how that works. When there's someone who you really love, who is far from God, who is not yet submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you start praying desperately. God, put somebody in their life. Put somebody who knows you. Put somebody who cares enough to invite them to come to church or maybe to a Bible study or to something. God, may they, may they fall in love with somebody who loves you with all their heart. You pray that somebody will step up, somebody will come alongside, somebody will do what you've struggled to be able to do. But at the same time, you could be somebody's answer to their prayer about their child or grandchild or nephew or niece or co-worker. You could invite them to come to worship or to a Bible study. You see, a church starts to change when the people in the church start caring more about filling this chair of the future than they are about keeping that chair in the middle in which they're sitting comfortable and convenient. Most of us, come to church week after week for worship. We like worship. We like to thank our God. It comforts our soul. It was tough during this recent pandemic when when we couldn't come together for weeks and even months at a time. For many, weekly worship helps us to meet our spiritual needs. And then... And then perhaps you invited somebody to come with you. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a neighbor. It was somebody who didn't really know Jesus. And they committed to come to church with you on Sunday. And suddenly you start to look at everything quite differently than you did before. You start looking at your church through their eyes. And you start praying on the way to church on Sunday morning. Today Lord may the people in my church be more friendly than usual. May they not complain quite so much. In the service may the music touch their heart. And may the message be way 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 better than it than it usually is. You see when you begin to look through the eyes of someone who desperately needs Jesus, everything changes. We begin to realize that somebody's eternity is actually being held in the balance. Years ago, somebody said to me on a Sunday morning as I was prepared to walk into church to lead worship and to preach, they said, Doug, I have a friend and I've been praying for this friend and inviting them to come to church for years. And this morning, they're actually here for the very first time. Don't blow it. (laughs) And that is so cool for me to know that that person is deeply invested in what's gonna happen. That person was praying, praying out of desperation in their heart praying that God would use the message and the words, praying that God would use the worship and our fellowship together, praying that there would be a move of God's spirit in that service that morning. And those are the kinds of prayers that our God just loves to answer. When there is someone we care about, someone we we have been praying for, someone we've invited, and we're asking God to use us God will. Let me tell you, when people are most open to God, most open to an invitation, they're getting married. And when they're going through a divorce, when they're having a baby, when they have teenagers, when they've just moved into a new area, when they've just lost a job or just found a new one, When they're dealing with an addiction or entering into recovery. When they're experiencing a deep loss and they're grieving. When they have financial difficulties or they're having some family issues or problems. So truth is, just about any time. Let me tell you how simple it is to be inviting. (laughs) Hey, you know, you ought to come to church with me on Sunday morning. It's not rocket science. Should we practice? (laughs) This summer, we can practice. You can practice your inviting skills by walking with us through All Word Estates on, on Thursday, June 22, to invite people to come to our Sunday social on July 16, or you can invite your neighbors to join us for outdoor movie night in August on the 18th. A few years ago, Pew Research concluded, and this is a quote, Christians are leaving the faith in droves and the trend is not slowing down. In the last seven years, people in the United States who call themselves followers of Jesus has dropped over 10%. Not only is the church not growing, but every year, 1% are totally dropping out. And that was before the pandemic hit. And statistics indicate that 20% of the people that were coming to church regularly before the pandemic have not yet returned at all. And that's not okay. You see, these are our children. And they are our grandchildren. These are our friends, and these are our neighbors. These are our coworkers. These are people whose attorney whose eternal destiny is in jeopardy. It's true that the church has ebbed and flowed for over 2,000 years, and God isn't all that anxious about it because worldwide his church is growing rapidly. But in this part of the world where we are, where you and I live, churches are dying because primarily they're focused only on that middle chair. When was the last time you said to someone you know who needs a church home, you should come to my church? We need to be inviting. People need to know Jesus. There's no one that doesn't need to know God. Surveys continue to tell us that the number one reason why people don't come to church is because they have never been invited. Get it? Got it. Good. Second, be connecting. People might come to church because they've been invited, but they stay because of the relationships that they build, because they've been welcomed, because they're connected. So in spite of networking and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and email and instant messaging and Facebook and LinkedIn and all kinds of other Opportunities, people today are lonelier than they have ever been before. Physical and spiritual isolation is lethal. We saw significant evidence of that during this not-so-long-ago pandemic. But connected people, people with deep and abiding friendships and intimate relationships, live significantly longer than people who don't have those. So this fall, we're going to be inviting you to join a small group. Our recruiting model that we're thinking about using is rather simple. Join or die. (laughs) Connections, relationships are literally that important. We currently have a few small groups here, and we're working on building more. But if you've been a follower of Jesus for a little while, you should seriously consider starting a small group and leading it. You can invite people from church that you see every week or you can invite some people from your neighborhood or or start one at work. If you'd like to join a group, let me know or let somebody in the church office know or let your shepherd know. We'll get you in a small group. And for those of you who are already in a small group, it is imperative that we intensely set out an empty chair to remind us consciously that God wants somebody to be sitting there, and who might that be? God wants us to be a three-chair church. So if you're older, if you're older, that is, if you're, if you're out of high school, ask God to give you a person to whom you can pour your life into and mentor. And if you're younger, that is, if you're under 80, ask God for a person who can mentor you. Leaders, office bearers, and staff members need to be modeling this in our lives. Every believer needs somebody in that first chair situation and needs somebody in the third chair situation as they're sitting in the middle chair. And after worship today, perhaps before connecting with the same old, same old that you always talk to on a Sunday morning, connect at least for a few moments with somebody that you don't know very well. Seek out a guest or a visitor. Engage with somebody who seems to be standing all by themselves and can use the listening ear. Get it? Good. So be inviting, be connecting, and third, be generous. If you're a member of this church, if you know Jesus, and if you want to really make a difference, then you need to be fully, and that includes financially invested in this ministry and in this mission. So a few weeks ago, we approved a budget that supports missionaries around the world, Christian colleges and a seminary, chaplaincies, campus ministries, disability ministries, social justice and and hunger awareness, just to name a few. Here at Georgetown, your sacrificial giving provides these worship experiences and pastoral care and faith formation opportunities for children and students and adults, community engagements, fellowship opportunities, and benevolence for those who are struggling. We need to remember everything we have comes from God. And we can't take any of it with us. We just get to use it. We get to steward it. We get to care for it here and now in our lifetime. And all God requires of us while we're here and now is that we return a portion of it, a a tithe, if you will, 10% of it back to him that he might use. But it's already his. So technically, we're not giving it to him. Technically, we're just returning it to him for his use. But God says, test me. Give me the first 10% and just watch what I can do. A church I know offered their congregation a three-month money-back guarantee. They said, if you tithe and God doesn't richly bless you in the next 90 days, we'll return all the money you've given to the church for those 90 days. You can't give God. Giving Increased. And that one single person asked for their money back. So I give you that challenge. If you're not already tithing and giving God your offerings, try it for 90 days, just for three months, and see if God doesn't bless you beyond your wildest expectation. God wants us, you see, to be generous because he is generous. And God calls us to be generous to other people in his name with our time and with our talents and with our testimony as well as with our treasures. Those are the tools that God has put into our workroom to use for his honor and for his glory. So if we really want to reach people for Jesus, if we really want to fill this third chair, we need everybody to be on board. We need everybody all in. We need (coughs) consensus, We need unity. We need passion. And giving is one way that we get on board. Because as someone has said, where our wallet is, there is where our heart is also. Get it? Good. Fourth, be serving. Be serving one another. The third chair doesn't automatically just fill itself. It takes some intentional and some concerted effort but the church is not a spectator sport. Everyone is on the team and everyone on the team plays and everyone is to play all the time. We need to get out of our seats. We need to get off of the bleachers. We need to get out of the pews, off the sideline and get onto the playing field. We need to remember that our huddling together isn't what wins the game. It's what we do after we've huddled together that makes the difference. We need to roll up our sleeves and we need to discover and deploy our spiritual gifts. We need to make ourselves available for God to use. You could hold a baby, greet a visitor, lead a small group, work with children, be a student mentor, join a worship team, pray, invite your neighbor, hand out food. You could pass out invitations on the 22nd. You could set up or take down for us on the 16th of July. You could bring your neighbors to the movie night on the 18th in August. Or you could just come. Just introduce yourself. Get to know the guests. See, these activities aren't just designed to build, to give give people something to do while they're bored this summer. These designs are to build Christ's church, to help fill this third chair, to be intentional. When we step up and make ourselves available, God starts to use us, and this third chair gets filled. The church becomes great when people say, I care so much about filling that third chair. I am willing to do whatever, whatever it takes. We have children who need to be loved. We have students who need someone to cheer them on. We have adults who could use a friend. We need prayer partners. Imagine if we had two prayer partners for every student in this congregation. Imagine if we had 50 care portal responders. Imagine if we had 50 people praying daily to bless every home in this community. We would transform this community So you can talk to Amy. We live in a community. We live in a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. The next generation needs somebody to step up for them like the previous generation stood up for us. The generation that's willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary so they too can hear about how much Jesus loves them. The psalmist writes in our text, we will tell the next generation praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And when we do that, they will put their trust in the Lord. Playing on the field, or as Robert Munger would say, working in the workroom, we'll experience God's in ways we have never begun to imagine if we simply had stayed in the bleachers or on the sideline or left our tools on the shelf. Get it? Good. Finally, be praying. The stakes, friends, are high. They are very high. Who's going to be sitting in this third chair? Will the next generation come to know God? Will your children or your grandchildren or their children or your grandchildren's grandchildren. Jesus concludes a teaching on prayer in Luke 18 with these words. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will you be a part of a movement of prayer that ushers in revival? Will you be a part of a prayer that asks for god's spirit to transform lives will you be part of a movement that pushes us out of our comfort zone to proclaim a message of love and grace a gospel of good news a life changing relationship with jesus will you be part of a movement to tell our children and our grandchildren and our friends and people everywhere about jesus Those are the questions of discipleship. So will you be a disciple of Jesus? The psalmist reminds us that for God followers, for disciples of Jesus, these are not options. This is not multiple choice. These are the things a follower of God and a disciple of Jesus does. Followers of Jesus depend on his spirit They go where the Spirit sends. They earnestly pray for those who are lost. So Jesus is calling us to pray for the harvest of lost souls. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but those laborers, they're few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest fields. God is calling for all believers to be fully devoted laborers, fully devoted harvesters in his workroom right down to the very tips of our toes. Get it? Good. Now be assured the best is yet to come. God will pour out his blessings greater than you and I could ever begin to dream or imagine. Hopefully the things that we have talked about this morning are not new. They are just reminders of things we have heard over and over and over because this is what the church is all about and this is what the scripture calls us to do. But knowing them is still quite different than actually doing them. Don't be discouraged if you can't do anything and everything. Do something. Do what God is calling you to do. Do what God has gifted you to do. It's not our ability that's important. It's our availability. If you're willing to turn the workroom of your heart over to God, you will not only be blessed, but you will be a blessing to the next generation, to Christ's church, and to his kingdom in this world. Get it? Good.